If you take your Bible and turn to John chapter 4. I love to sing the words of God, don't you? Did you hear it in the last two songs? Obviously, the first one was titled John 4. I don't know. First of all, I don't know who wrote Satisfied. Man, I sure don't claim to know the text he used uh, in his inspiration of that song. But this one fits, doesn't it? My song, my, my, the song says, my soul is craving. And what did Jesus do? He gave a living water that sprung up in this person's life. And this is exactly what I think we hear happening in this story, John 4, that John so, uh, so colorfully paints the picture for us. Remember, thinking of this as a unit, the end of John 2, through the end of this story in 42, John uh, 4, 42, we have a unit, I believe, of thought. And that is, He knew the heart of every man. Then the Bible says in Genesis 3, what? A man came, and his name was Nicodemus. Remember I said, isn't it like God, that those who are like Christ came to Him. Those who were not like Christ, He went after and so we have this picture of evangelism, I believe, and of the more than evangelism, because I think evangelism is a is a uh, Bob St. John and I were talking about this the other day. Evangelism is a tricky term. We read evangelism, we think about what we do. That's not really what evangelism is. Even in the Bible, when it talks about the gift of evangelism, that really is not. The action of sharing the gospel. That is the action of teaching others how to proclaim the gospel. That's what the gift of evangelism is. Don't make a mistake here. I want you to all understand this as I need to understand it better. We are all commissioned with the gospel. To go forward and to speak it around the the globe really. And around our globe. Whatever that is for you. If it's in... uh, in your business, in your home with your children, in your neighborhood, wherever you are, you're to speak the gospel. That doesn't take a gift. The gift comes in with training. But we think wrongly about evangelism. We think about man's effort to go get other people. Though we are part of the equation, we are not the major part of that equation. The major part of evangelism from a scriptural standpoint and understanding is God going forward with His gospel. And He uses vessels, us, the body of Christ, to take that gospel forward. But it's God's initiative and it's God's plan that's going forward. And so we started out in this uh, talking about a whole outline. And then last week focused in on verses 1 through 6. And I do want to emphasize some facts from last week. Uh, and, And the first one is that don't misunderstand uh, an example. The examples are so important to us understanding. I'm going to use examples today. But we unfortunately have equated examples with the message. Ex- examples can be complete and they can be partial. And I gave several partial examples last week of, of a desire to unify people. You remember William Wilberforce. Just read a great, finished a great book by, about him, by the way. It's a little bitty book. I think the church is going to buy it and let the people have it. Uh, but uh, that's not from the throne, so <laughs> it's a, it may not happen. But 
Uh, John Piper has just written a 77-page little booklet, basically, on the life of Wilberforce. It is life-transforming. He was an agent of change in his day. I used the example of Abraham Lincoln as an agent of change and also Martin Luther King. And I know that uh, one that raised eyebrows. Uh, and I have to admit that I did not realize how many eyebrows nor how big they would be raised, okay? But I did understand that I wanted to grope and find examples from different cultures. Notice England, though we think they're white like us, that's a different culture, especially being in the 1700s when Wilberforce was active. Whole different world from where we live. Abraham Lincoln, whole different world and region of the country. And then Martin Luther King, though he was from our region, was from a different culture really than the people of his day. And he was seeking to unify people. But don't mistake the examples for a call to social activism, okay? That's not what I'm trying to profess. And that's not what I'm trying to get this church to give its life to. The end was so important to the message. I thought I had masterfully tied the thing together. Obviously not. I exposited to you the best I know how the Word of God. And then I brought in these worldly examples of how God has placed in the heart of people the desire to unify. And then I said what? I have a dream. And what was the dream? A gospel dream. That from every mountain the gospel would ring forth and unify the hearts of men. Look, it won't be done through politics. It won't be done through marches. It won't be done through writing books. It won't be done through only through all of these mediums. It will be done by vessels going forward, used by God to spread the gospel from one end of the earth to the other. That's how we'll be unified. So don't misunderstand me. Though I do like that I made you uncomfortable. I have to confess. Because these are the truths I wanted you to get last week. Jesus overcomes the barriers in our lives, and one of them is racism. Racism is alive and well. It is in the heart of man to hate people not like him. And I I could get into some philosophical reasons for that, but that's enough. Racism is real if you have fooled yourself. This is the second thing. I wanted to bring you to... The reality, wake you from your, my foolish mindset that I've overcome these things. Amado was talking about me shaking his world up. Listen, I was born the son of a cotton farmer in Mississippi. I fit every um, worldly category for a racist And for about 17 years of my life, I fulfilled them to a T without touching anybody. I never hit a man and never openly shunned a man. But in my heart, I shunned everybody that wasn't like me. Everybody. And so what I was calling to out of these scriptures is we need to realize that racism is alive and well. Racism is in our own hearts. We are struggling with it, if we're honest. I hope you're struggling with it. 
Some people aren't struggling very much, unfortunately. But we it is a reality and it is in our hearts. It's not some foreign sin of a few people of the KKK or of some uh, black supremacy group or a group about Hispanics. No, it's not in those extreme groups only. It's in our hearts. And my hope was to show that to you from the Scripture. Third, to confess and repent of the sin of racism. I wanted to call you to confess and repent. And I thought, you know, hey, I did that in front of you. Some of you might say a little too much, but I think it's healthy to publicly confess. And to realize, too, that the confession is more about harming God, not man. The most grievous part of racism is it is a harm to God. It is a smack in God's face. That's really what it is. It's like all the other sins. It's a beating of the chest. It's a pride. I'm better than everybody else. And they do not have as much of the image of God in them as I do. Therefore, I'm superior. That's racism. We don't like to call it in terms like that because we like to excuse it. But that's the reality. When we look down at other cultures, what we're saying is they're not as much like God as I am and like my culture is. They need to be more like me. And that's an affront to God because God is drawing us, remember, to the throne in Revelation 5, 9, and in Revelation 7, where what will happen? Every some from every tribe and every language and every culture all over the world will do what? Sing to Christ. Praise Him. It's a smack at God. That's why it's a sin. More than it's a harm to man, though it has much harmful effect on man too, it's more an attack against God. I know better. People like Hitler say, I know better than God. I'll destroy all races except the ones like mine. We don't know better than God. It's a, it's a sin of Babel. I'm going to reunite us all under one whatever the, the race might be. And so I wanted to point that out, emphasize that. Four, I wanted us to understand that racism's primary assault is against God. Five, I wanted to encourage us to break the barriers which separate us from other cultures and race. And my encouragement was to break the barrier with the gospel. With the gospel. The sad part, and I've mentioned this before, the sad part about King and his movement is that at least outwardly, it lost the gospel. It lost the gospel. It became more about men than it did about God. Okay? Outwardly, I'm speaking. I can't speak for his heart. I tend to think that his heart was pure. Though he was failed as a human, he had a pure heart. He wanted the gospel to go forward. If you read any of his things, not about them, but read them. They're on the internet, all over the place. Read his words. He had a real passion for Christ, and he had a real passion for the gospel. But I think that's been lost in his movement. I admit that. And so I'm not calling this church to join some movement. I'm calling this church to defeat the barriers, all of them, with what? One word. What are we going to defeat the barriers with? Say it loud. The gospel. That's it. That's it. That's, that, that's the call of last week's message. So don't be, don't be offended by the use of an example, first of all. I want to caution you because I'll use other examples that you'll say, well, I don't like that example. Well, use it like we often do parables. And that is that they have a main point. And everything's not applicable. 
And I need to do a better job of communicating that to you. And so I'll share my part of that. But when you hear this message, it is a message of the gospel. That's really what it is. And to say I'm going to remain separate from everybody else on the face of the earth but believe Christ is a lie. Separate is never equal. Separate is never equal. It's always sinful. And so, that was last week's message. The challenge of last week's message is that we not be satisfied with the gospel going forth to those of our kind, of those who look like us, act like us, live in our socioeconomic class, but that we would be burdened for those not like us. That we would go after and run after those not like us. Grace Fellowship should be thinking about ways to break the barriers with the power of the gospel. One of those ways is Glenn Addy. You have a practical opportunity to show the gospel of Jesus Christ and go and serve Him there. And it's a worthy cause. We will never be intentional about breaking down barriers that we refuse to recognize. If you don't recognize them, you'll never want to break them because you won't know they're there. So I'm calling us to that. Today we're going to continue in this mission intentional emphasis. Mission intentional. Last week... Uh, was also a mission intentional, that we go to the world with the gospel. Mission intentional, evangelism addresses real needs. Or better said, evangelism addresses the real need. That's what it addresses, is the real need. Look with me at the passage, 7 through 15. We must be willing to begin the conversation, That we must be willing to begin the conversation at the level of the pit person we're trying to reach with the gospel. You've got to start where they are. That's what Jesus did. Look in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus doesn't launch off into a discourse about the reality of the gospel here, does He? He doesn't. What does He do? He asked for a drink of water. He met her where she was. He met her where she was. It's very applicable to you. You go stand by the copying machine at your workplace. Go sit in a restaurant and talk to a waitress. The best place for you to strike up conversation is about what you're there doing. And that's what Jesus did. He met her where she was. He didn't just jump off in some pontification of philosophy and religion. She would have been confused. Much less she would have said, that's a Jew. He's talking to Jewish people. Not me. So he met her where she was. Jesus was physically thirsty. And his physical thirst is used by John to draw a parallel between her spiritual thirst. Jesus says, I'm thirsty. I'm weary. I'm thirsty. And do you see the parallel? The woman is weary spiritually. And she's thirsty spiritually. So here John, I mean, isn't John a masterful writer? He just draws all these connections we, we just read through it, you know. We, we, we just miss it. This is an arid country. You, you can be out west. I've been to Wyoming and you can be out there and you're in the sun and it will draw the, the water out of your body without you sweating. You won't even realize it's leaving. It's just gone. It evaporates. There's more water in you than there is in the atmosphere around you and it will just leave. And people dehydrate and die from that condition. And here Jesus is in a very similar setting. He's in an arid country and His water in His body is sapped. 
Just like spiritually, the woman had been sapped of the water. She was dry. She was dead. She had no hope. Jesus, without water, had no hope physically. Jesus is thirsty from seeking the lost. Isn't that neat? Jesus got thirsty. Why? Because he walked two days into a country that was arid. To do what? To reach a little woman at a well. He had made himself utterly at the brink of of exhaustion, fatigue, all those things. In want and need of water to sustain his life. Why? Not on vacation. He did it going through a rugged, arid country to reach a woman. Have you ever been thirsty? Have you ever worn yourself out for the gospel's sake? It's going to ask, that's just the open question for you. Have you ever made yourself physically exhausted for the sake of the gospel? Jesus did. Jesus did. And to reach them where they are, we will probably get exhausted too. I think about our college ministry. You know, they keep all these late hours, you know, 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. And that's cool when your classes start at 11 or 12. It ain't cool when your classes start at 7.30 or when you got to have prayer meeting in the morning or whatever, that, you know, I'm not going to get, or staff meeting or go to a job if you're a student. And you're staying up. These students stay up all hours of the night. Their friends sleep late. Skip class. Who cares? And they intentionally stay up late to be around these lost people. Why? So they can meet them where they are, so they can share the gospel with them, so that they can be a light in a dark world. And they don't get the advantage of sleeping late. They've got to get up and get about business in life. And, and they exhaust themselves. I watch them. You watch. They're all excited right now. That's the beginning of the semester. By May, boy, that jet will be lagging. You know? <clears throat> When's the last time we as adults did that? As older adults. As 40-year-olds or 50-year-olds. The last time you said, I'm going to not just happen to stay up, my car broke down, but I'm going to stay up. I'm going to go to this guy's house and I'm going to get in conversation. It's going to last in all hours of the night. My whole purpose is to mail a relationship, share the gospel. Jesus did it. Others are doing it. Are we doing it? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to meet people where they are as Jesus did? You know, I've been thirsty. I told you I'm the son of a cotton farmer. And uh, I've I, Applied that trade for uh, some years, you know, starting as a young little boy. And, you know, when you're five, half-mile rows look like eternity. And we had several fields that were a half-mile long. I'd start on the end of that cotton field, and I didn't think we were ever going to get to the other end. And no matter what, it always seemed that I ended up with the one with all the morning glories in it. I had to get on my knees and pull in the fire ants. I was just a little bitty kid. And I won't ever forget from the time I was five until I was gone to college, the feeling of being thirsty. It's a real need. Water is a real need. Evangelism meets the real need. Because the reality is the world is full of people that are just that thirsty spiritually. And Jesus realizes that. And John plays on that thirst. So Jesus has worn himself out physically reaching this woman. Are we willing to do that? 
We've got to be willing to meet them where they are. Jesus broke through the barriers of re- to reach this woman with the good news. Jesus broke through the barriers. What were they? They were many. Gender. She's a woman. He's a man. Jews didn't even speak to their wives in public. They didn't even talk to the woman they went home with, much less some other woman. And here she is. So there's a gender barrier. There is a race barrier, which we've talked about. There is a religious system barrier. She worships. She's going to bring it out. She worships up here on this mountain. Your father's worship on that mountain. Who's right? There's a religious system that's a barrier. There's a rabbi to commoner barrier. Jesus is a rabbi. Rabbis don't talk to common Jews, much less to Samaritans. And the story of the Good Samaritan shows us that, doesn't it? Who walks past the man dying on the side of the street? The rabbi, the Levite. They're too busy about God's work to speak to this common person that's dying. Jesus breaks that barrier. And He reaches out to this common woman of another race, of another religious system. There's a moral barrier. Jesus is perfect. He's holy. She's stained without exception. She's stained. She's broken the law. She's grossly flaunted her sexuality. Intentionally or unintentionally, she has flaunted herself sexually. She's been married four times and has a fifth man that she lives with. It's not even her husband. So there was a moral barrier there. But Jesus, because he understood the gospel, saw no barriers. He didn't see barriers. He saw a human who was lost, who was dry, who was in need. And he saw that he, and he knew that he had all she needed. And so he strikes up conversation on her level. Don't miss that. He goes to where she is intentionally. He crosses all these barriers, which to him are no barriers at all because he understands the gospel. This point's emphasized by John. Look at, he doesn't just pass over this. Look at verse 8, this little aside. The disciples have gone away into the city to buy food. Can you imagine? This? They're headed up the hill to Sychar. She's headed out from Sychar to the well. And what kind of response do you think the disciples gave her? They're Jewish, headstrong leaders. You think they stopped and moved out of the way and said, Come on by. I see that water pot you got there. It must be heavy. It's the middle of the day. Let us help you carry that water pot to the well. Can we help you get some water? Do we see any of those responses? John's in the group. That's why he puts the aside there, I think. The disciples left, walked right past this woman, probably ran her off the road. (laughs) These proud Jewish men, their chest strung out. We're of a superior race, a superior religion, superior gender. We're superior. And march right past. And here the God of the universe sits down in her life and says, Hey, could I have a drink? I'm thirsty. She's thirsty. And he identifies with her by saying, I'm thirsty. I I think this is one of the most magnificent uh, stories. The more I study it, the more I fall in love with it. I sound like Aaron. Every passage is my favorite all of a sudden. (laughs) 
We have to be willing to reach them where they are. That's what Jesus did. We've got to get down there where they are. Go to where they are. Put ourselves in their position. Don't see barriers. And be willing to simply ask a question. Strike up conversation. Secondly, we need to be skillfully... We need to skillfully move the conversation towards spiritual things. Now, He doesn't just stay where she is. He doesn't keep talking about H2O and how good the water feels and go on and on, waste an hour and a half, and then the disciples come back and He says, well, missed that opportunity. That's what I do. Right? That's what you do. Don't tell me you don't do that. You take somebody to lunch. With the sole intention, I'm going to share the gospel with this guy. Lord, help me as I share the gospel. Help us to get into a conversation. All these things we leave, powerful, strong. We get to the restaurant, sit down. We start talking about football. We start talking about their work. We start talking about their family. And we just, and all of a sudden, an hour's passed. It's time to go. And we hadn't said anything about Jesus. We think that's unconscious. I want to say that's conscious in the subconscious of our mind. We're scared to death to confront someone with the words of life. We're scared for whatever reason it is. I don't know. I'm scared. Hey, I've been in seminary. I've read the Bible. I've, you know, hey, I stand up here every week. Surely he's got it all figured out. No, every week I fail right here. Have the best intentions, but I don't close the deal. I don't open up finally and say something about the gospel. Steer the conversation. Jesus is not out of control here. Don't miss the point. Give me a drink as an introduction into her level, her world, what she's focused on. And then what does he do? He steers it. He takes her response and he plays off of it. You see it there in verse, as you move down the passage in verse 9. She says, you're a Jew and you ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? What's What's Jesus' response? Well, you know, I'm real thirsty. And I am about to die. I need something. I don't have a cup. I don't have anything, to, no bucket to get water. I, you know, I, I'm in need. No. What does he do? He, he shoves the physical thing to the side. And what does he say? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink of water, you'd ask him for a drink of this living water. Right? He took the conversation where she was and he took it where he wanted to go how many of us show up with the trump card we got all the answers from the moment we walk in wherever we're going to share the gospel and we unload with them four barrels bang the truth we just chunk it out there your problem is you're a sinner bang 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 we just humiliate them god's holy you'll never know him we just start all these truths they're truths we haven't met them where they are they thought they were coming to lunch to talk about football now you're talking about them going to hell They're confused. Confused. Don't do that to people. Be intentional. Go there with there. They want to talk about football? Fine. Talk about football. And then in the conversation, always be aware of those moments and they will come every time. You know, I I try to blame God all the time. Well, God, you just didn't open the door. And then all of a sudden, eight different instances in the conversation come where I just ran right through them. I could have turned this conversation. I could have spoke of Christ. Instead, I was comfortable. I wasn't intentional and I wasted the opportunity. We'll do that. All through life we do that. And I do it. I'm not beating you up. I'm saying I'm, this confession again. Hey, we all do this. All I'm saying is as a church, as a people, as you, as a Christian, be intentional. Evangelism meets the need that they have. It meets the need that they have. 
Jesus moved the conversation from physical water to spiritual water. And the Old Testament background is rich. Isaiah 12, 3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 55, 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. You hear? This is deep. I mean, it goes all the way back. Jeremiah, my favorite one in this list. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils, God says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That's the first sin. And they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which will not hold water. Get this. I don't want to play too much on it, but do you see it? She comes to a cistern to get water. And Jesus says, I'll give you What? Living water. Sounds like Jeremiah 2, 13 a lot. I will give them water. Living water, the word says in the Hebrew. Living water. They won't have to come to these cisterns of spiritual water anymore. These dead religions. They worship on one mountain and the other. No, they will come to me and drink from the living water. This is Jesus expositing maybe for us. I don't know. It's a good question. It's a good thought. Numbers 20. I, I see the rock that Moses <coughs> was supposed to speak to. And what came from the rock? Water. Now, I don't want to be too close with this comparison. Again, the, we need to be careful. But do you see it? Jesus is called the living stone, the rock, the foundation, the cornerstone, all through the Bible. And he is called the living water. And what happens in Numbers 20 when the people cry out, we're dry, we have nothing to drink. God doesn't say, go find them a stream. What does he do? Go over to that rock and tell it to give you some water. You see God setting the table for centuries to come for people to be able to say, our God is a rock of living water. The fulfillment comes much later, but I think the picture is there for us as early as Numbers. It's there. It's puzzling to her, this statement about living water. It's puzzling because Jacob would not have taken the time to dig a well a hundred foot deep to get some water if there was living water. Living water in their, con- in, their, uh, in their conversation was flowing water opposed to stagnant water. Living water flowed, okay? And so she, she gets confused. See her, sir, you don't have anything to draw with. The well's deep. Where do you get that living water? She changes subjects. Don't misunderstand her. She knows living water doesn't come out of a well. She's saying, where are you going to get the living water? Are you greater than Jacob, our father, who dug this well and drank of it and his livestock drank of it? The answer is both. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to give you living water. And yes, I'm greater than your father, Jacob. As a matter of fact, my name is the God of who? Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob. He is greater than Jacob. He is greater than her forefather. He does trump her religion. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Can you give us living water? He couldn't. Jesus says, on both accounts, yes. I can, I will, and I am greater than him. Jesus is patient with the woman. 
It's about this time in the conversation. I usually just go and muddle my way through. And then I leave feeling good because I shared the gospel. And they're beat to death <laughs> with my attitude and my confidence and arrogance. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's patient with her. She's still talking about physical water. He doesn't unload on her. What does he do? He gives her a gentle answer. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He nudges her further to the spiritual. He just keeps bringing the conversation full circle. But the water that I, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst forever. The water that I will give him will become in him what? A fountain of living water. A fountain of living water. Welling up to eternal life. Jesus is gentle and patient. We must be that way also. We must be intentional to go to them where they are. We must be intentional and very cognizant of the conversation so we can direct it where we want it to go, from physical to spiritual. And these dialogue can happen like this in our world all the time. They talk about material pleasures. Get somebody in your stead, in, in your company that says, you know, the stock market's up. You know, they're just going on about physical and material things. You can turn that to world from worldly things to godly things. You know how? Yeah, yeah, I was around when it fell in the late 90s and early 2000. But you know what? If my hope had been in that, I'd have jumped out of windows. But my hope's not in that worldly treasure. My hope's in the treasure of heaven. That's where I'm laying up my treasure. And it doesn't sound preachy to say things like that. Work it into the conversation. They're pursuing temporary things and we're pursuing eternal things. Well, take the temporary pursuit and follow it to its logical end and say, you know what, temporarily you're satisfied, but don't you get more thirsty every time? Let me talk to you about the eternal good. Let me talk to you about Jesus Christ. Self-oriented to others-oriented. People want to talk about being self-oriented. Everything's about them. Turn the conversation to others. Don't, don't, don't fall into the trap of talking about yourselves. Retirement versus eternity. This one's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and at the risk of getting on a soapbox, America is consumed with retirement. The whole presidential election in 2008, let nobody fool you, will come down to one big issue. What are they going to do with Social Security? Who's got the plan to say they're going to talk about Iraq? They're going to talk about all that? No. They want to know how you're going to keep me fat and happy when I'm older and who we got to sacrifice to get it. The world's not consumed with this. Go to another country. Let's go to the Sudan. See if anybody's talking about retirement over there. No. They're not talking about retirement. They're talking about hopefully I live till I go to sleep tonight. I'm talking about it. We've become so wealthy, so self-sufficient, so eye-oriented that all we worry about is... And it'll come up in conversation all the time. It happens among preachers. Touchstone. They'll talk about Godstone or whatever that thing is, the Southern Baptist Retirement. I was up there for my doctoral, and they just talked on about this thing. It was up, it was down. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, I don't know. I got a little money. I put it in there, but I ain't counting on it. I hope I die before I have to use that. I hope I'm on a, in a foreign soil somewhere where a couple of thousand dollars will make it to the end of life. That's what I'm hoping for. If Jesus doesn't come back, Amy and I got to move out of this country because our retirement <laughs> is not going to supply us all we need for as long as we live. 
We'll have to go be missionaries. Be no other choice. And that's, that's intentional partly, and partly it's crazy, I know. But the reality is, eternity is bigger than retirement. The tragedy of life is to retire. That's tragic. Living until you die for the gospel is worthwhile. So when you retire from your worldly pursuits, when you stop working at your place of business, whatever it is, live out your days for the glory of God. Turn the conversation that way. You'll be amazed at all the conversations that'll strike. Tell them you're not saving for retirement. Their eyes will bug out, you know. Jesus not only turned the conversation, but he stayed on his subject. He could have jumped off on this Jacob train. He could have taken that rabbit, but he didn't. She couldn't bait him into it. She's going to try again later to bait him into this religious debate. He ain't going to follow it. He's going to stay on his conversation. We've got to do the same thing. Are you aware of your deep longing to be satisfied? If you're a Christian who's recently been, uh, began a conversation with the intent of drawing a person into the reality of Jesus Christ, have you done that lately? Maybe you're here and you're lost. And you say, what good is this message for me? You are longing for something you can't find. He is the only one who can supply it. If you're a Christian, it applies to you because I want to know. Not that you've got to tell me, but to God. When's the last time you struck one of these conversations up? With the intention of bringing them the good news of Jesus Christ. The, the world really is simple, you know. <coughs> we complicate it. But let me end by doing this. There's other things to say. Let me just say this. Since the Garden of Eden, biblical theology is in dire need in our country. The view that the whole Bible is a Christian scripture is lacking. It's lacking. The whole thing is a Christian scripture. Genesis was written for Christians. (laughs) It was written for Christians. The Garden of Eden had four things in it that are of note. Listen to these four things. You might want to write them down. It had rivers. The Bible tells us they flowed there. That's where it was. It had rivers. It had the tree of life. It had the presence of God with unbroken fellowship with the creation, especially man. And fourthly, there was perfect communion between God and man, God and creation, and man and creation. These four things existed in the garden. And then Adam rebelled. He wanted to be God. He sinned. He fell short of the glory of God. And he was driven from the presence of God in the garden and he was forced to live in a world outside of this place of holy communion. And from the day of his sin forward, he needed a mediator to relate to God. And God showed him that with the sacrifice of the animal. So Adam had to have a mediator. And God began immediately to show them that fellowship would be gained from the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, the one to come. And His name is Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes in Him and repents of their sins will be saved. Saved to what end? How and why are we saved? Get this. 
It's remarkable to me that the Bible ends the way it began. Genesis 1-3 tells of this creation, relationship, and fall of man. Revelation follows the same sequence in reverse. It shows us the fall of man. It shows us after the fall of man, the relationship through Jesus Christ, and then the recreation. Same pattern that's in Genesis is in Revelation. And God says that in that day, there will be a dwelling place, a city it's called, and there'll be four things there. One, there will be a river of living water, by the way, John calls it. The tree of life will be there. The relationship between God and man, God and his creation, and man and the creation will be perfect again. And the communion between God and man will be real, face to face, like it was in the garden. The whole Bible is a message that can be summed up with this simple verse. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears, that's you and me, say, come. And let the one who is thirsty That's you if you're lost. Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The whole Bible, one message. One message. God in perfect relationship with man and his creation. It was perfect in the garden. It's going to be perfect again. And my prayer, my plea to you today is simple. Come. Come. If you've never drank from this water, this living water, it is the all that will satisfy your thirst. He is all that will reach you. He is all that can save you. And if you're saved, let those who hear, let those who hear, Say to the world, come, come and take freely from the water of life and live with him for eternity. It's the greatest story ever told from Genesis to Revelation. God with his people. Will you do it? Will you drink? Will you come? I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, we are guilty of uh, taking uh, the living water and trying to dam it up. I think about, in my own experience, (coughs) that fact that I have received the gospel and yet I've heard it and I'm not saying come. Not nearly enough and not loudly enough and not to enough types of people I'm not saying come. I can excuse it however I choose, but the reality is it's sin and I confess of that and I pray for our people. We are not saying come. We do not have the intentional mission that Christ had. 
So, Jesus, you will have to give it to us. You will have to burn in our heart this love and zeal for your good news. We can't whip it up. We can't make it happen. We can't drive ourselves to it. We can't do it, Lord. We are wet wood that needs to be lit a fire. And so light us. Ignite us to be lights on a hill. Cities that cannot be hidden. Let us not be like the fool who lights a torch and puts a bushel basket over it. But let us, let that light shine as to fill the whole house with light. Exposing the wickedness of those around us and offering to them the water of life. That's what this two message has been all about is that there's evil, it needs to be exposed. Not only needs to be exposed, but it needs a solution, which is the living water. That's it. There's nothing else. Lord, help us to be that way. Help us to be convicted in that way today as we leave. And if there is a lost man here, and I'm sure there is, I pray that you would deliver them today, that you would, your spirit would be a living water flowing out of them to eternal life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Any questions about today's message? I'll be happy.